Welcome to Rhetorically Speaking, the podcast that explores how and why rhetoric matters. I'm Jenny Stoniker, an advanced lecturer in the Program in Writing and Rhetoric at Stanford University. And today I'm joined by two of my colleagues to talk about the rhetoric of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Sarah, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Sarah Pedock, and I am an advanced lecturer like Jenny in the Program in Writing and Rhetoric at Stanford University. Awesome. All right. And we are also joined by Hayden Cantor. Hayden, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Hayden Cantor. I'm a lecturer in the program of, in writing of rhetoric at Stanford University. All right. Thank you so much for to both of you for being here today. I think all of us have been talking a lot about COVID-19 and the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus lately. And so we thought we would take some time during this episode to talk a little bit about how we're talking about the new coronavirus and this pandemic, thinking a little bit around kind of how we name viruses, how we make decisions in the public health sphere, um, and how we sort of promote various public health practices like social distancing. Uh, I also want to make a note that we're recording this episode on March 31st, 2020. And so this is obviously a very emergent situation. The things we talk about today may change a little bit over the next few weeks before the episode is released. So do keep that in mind. I also want to note that we are all recording this from our various socially distant locations around the Bay Area. So um, our audio quality may be a little bit different than other episodes. Thanks to our listeners in advance for, for kind of being patient with that. So uh, Hayden, you are going to start us off by talking a little bit about how we name viruses and why that's so important. Thanks, Jenny. It's great to be here. Uh, one of the things that really compels me in this current moment is the politics of naming this disease, and more broadly, how we even talk about COVID-19 to begin with. So if you open the newspaper these days, or you look on Twitter, you'll see it called COVID, COVID-19, Corona, coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, Rona, that's the slang for the kids, <laughs> the virus, along with several slurs related to the country of origin. And we can really learn a lot from who is speaking, what type of expertise they have, who their audience is, and what the purpose of this communication is, and what it tells us more broadly about the social politics of this disease. So according to the World Health Organization, the disease is officially called coronavirus disease COVID-19, previously known as 2019 novel coronavirus. The virus itself is called SARS-CoV-2, or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. That's a mouthful. <laughs> yes. The disease and the virus have different names. Yeah. We have just like HIV is the virus and the disease is AIDS. We're sort of conforming to World Health Organization disease naming practices that tend to avoid naming diseases after animals, place names, country names, people, and that's to reduce stigma that might accrue to certain people. So you know, West Nile virus or Rift Valley fever gave those places a bad name in the same way that Lyme, Connecticut has been associated with the Lyme disease. Mm. So one of the most disconcerting aspects of this current moment, of course, is the way that the virus has been associated with people of Chinese origin. Uh, you see certain politicians calling it the Chinese virus, Wuhan virus, Kung flu. And these names are, are obviously deeply hurtful to Asians and Asians Americans who have a long history of being stigmatized going back to the yellow peril era uh, in American history. And so it's particularly dangerous and hateful to see this type of rhetoric being advanced from the highest levels of government. Well, and especially now that there's more cases outside of China than there are inside of China, 
and more people have died outside of China than died inside of China. And so this is why I think the WHO is really pushing for these guidelines where we don't name viruses after people um, because viruses don't know geographical boundaries. They don't stay within a particular space. And so naming things or using names that reference a particular geographical location are just not really accurate. And as a disease spread, become even less accurate over time. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's absurd to think that you could... Um you know, prevent only, you know, only allow American citizens into the country as if the virus could tell who's an American citizen and who is not. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we're, we're dealing with a force that doesn't really care about our borders or our citizenship or our passports. Uh, a piece that I thought was really interesting that kind of extends from this problem of place and bias being associated with um, a disease that knows no boundaries was a piece that appeared early in February by Rosie Spinks, who's a travel writer and consultant. And she asked the question, who says it's not safe to travel to China? And what she observed about the rhetoric of associating the risk and the disease with a place is that the risk is meted out unfairly and in a way that reinforces Eurocentric biases. Western spaces benefit from the kind of presumption of familiarity and safety, um, whereas Eastern spaces often don't. And so what she argues, which I thought was really interesting, is that what's at stake is not the actual risk, but the perception of risk. And so when we misname things, what we're doing is saying that they're more risky than they may actually be for particular groups of people. Yeah. One of the things that's most interesting about this is how skewed those types of stereotypes and perceptions actually are. So we're now seeing very different rates of infection in the US and Europe compared with uh, South Korea, Japan, Singapore, other Asian countries. There's actually stories of people who've caught coronavirus in the US and are flying back to China because they know they can get care for it there. They know they can get tested. Yeah, I was reading that too. There are a lot of cruel ironies associated with the virus. Should we shift to talking about how it's sort of imbricated in in broader food systems? Yeah, I was going to ask you that. So Hayden, do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of your background and why this is something that you can really speak to? Thanks. So as an anthropologist who studies food production in Asia, I've been thinking a lot about where it's come from. So There's been excellent research by people like Rob Wallace, author of Big Farms Make Big Flu, who have talked about the imbrication between agribusiness and the rise of zoonotic diseases. So a zoonotic disease is when Mm -hmm. the the pathogen actually jumps from an animal to a human. Uh, In this case, it seems that COVID-19 has jumped from bats to humans, perhaps via the pangolin, sort of an intermediary mammal species. And what happens is in some of these wet markets where fresh meat and seafood are sold, uh, there's a lot of opportunity for the interface between humans and animals. A lot of these markets are located in Asia, in China. But Wallace's research is particularly interesting because he kind of pushes back on the idea that this is only a Chinese problem. What Wallace shows us is that this is really the result of much larger economic forces that have shaped, reshaped the way that we are now farming and raising livestock. So Wallace is pointing out that as industrial agribusiness and livestock rearing has accelerated in China, we're pushing people out into the margins, into new forests. And those are the Mm -hmm. zones where you get this interface between coronaviruses and people. So previously, those diseases would have been there, but they would have been boxed in. Nobody was going into those forests. Now the, the, the viruses have the ability to spread around the world, along with the food products that are being grown there. And so for Wallace, it's not just that it's a Chinese problem or it's a problem of wet markets, although that is where the disease has originated and accelerated, but it's 
really the logic of an agribusiness motivated by profit, creating an environment where all the animals are uh, genetically the same because they're most efficient to raise that way. And that's the moment when diseases and pathogens such as this are able to, sh uh, to spread through herds and flocks. Um, and the other interesting thing about like the Wuhan market was that they've been able to go back and look at blood samples from people before they noticed the kind of cluster of cases in the Wuhan market. And they can see it. They can see the coronavirus was already in the population before that. So even though that was kind of the first place where it came to people's attention, that probably wasn't the initial site of exposure. Like the patient zero wasn't at that seafood market. Um, and so again, just thinking about how kind of our initial understanding and reporting on a topic isn't always kind of the accurate representation of what might have happened. And it can set up these potential stereotypes and stigmas that aren't based in any sort of fact at all. Yeah, that's no. exactly right, Jenny. So, you know, we it's easy for us to say, oh, this is the market where it all started. But in reality, there's a chain of events that caused a new periphery to be created well into a forest, mm -hmm. the sort of the edge mm -hmm. of you know, a, a new landscape that is being capitalized. And it's really these new spaces of production and extraction where these viruses really would have gotten started. And the people wouldn't have even known that they were spreading them. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, do we want to kind of switch over now and talk a little bit about, about that kind of deluge of information that we're getting right now about thinking about this, this pandemic also as an infodemic? Sure, sure. Um, so because, as we've just been talking about, COVID-2 is a new virus, not much is known about it beyond its similarity to other coronaviruses. And as the virus spread and people began to get more worried, there was a lot of speculation and misinformation about the virus um, that began to spread as well. And in early February, the WHO deemed this rapid spread of misinformation an infodemic and began working with social media sites to stop the spread of misinformation. And basically what the term infodemic means is or says is that bad information spreads as readily as a virus, that all of us are susceptible to infection by bad ideas. And the WHO, uh, the World Health Organization, as a kind of the group that's taking responsibility for global health, is responding in, in some really interesting new ways. And that's because in public health, people not only need to be informed, but they also need to act appropriately. And so we have to tailor our communication so that we persuade people to behave in ways that's going to help all of us be healthy. The stakes are very high. So just to give you an example, one idea of bad information or misinformation that was spreading was that eating garlic combats COVID-19. And so the WHO ran an ad acknowledging that garlic is a healthy food, but that there's no evidence that it could combat COVID-19. And there's other much more dangerous ideas that are spreading. For example, the idea that it can be cured by drinking bleach, um, which of course does more damage to, to people who do that. So what the WHO has done is they've partnered um, with a lot of social media companies. So the kind of the usual suspects, so, you know, Facebook and Pinterest. And so what these media companies have been, or social media companies have been willing to do is to spread who ads. So the garlic ad, for example, um, or the garlic idea was responded to by the who, and they said, you know, yes, it's a healthy food, but it's actually not going to help you, you know, if you contract this disease. Or at least there's no it, there's no evidence for that yet. And so what they're really trying to spread is this idea of evidence based social or health interventions, um, and that people need to 
kind of the underlying message is, is that people need to underlie the arguments that are being made to them about what's good for their health. What, what, I, what I also want to say, though, about this that I think is really interesting is that we should draw a distinction between misinformation and disinformation. So misinformation can be kind of innocuous, like the, the garlic example. Um, it's just kind of poor health information that's distributed in error. But disinformation tends to be more systematic and it's an effort to destabilize social or political systems. Um, and we might think of it as misinformation by design. So for example, an anti-vaxxer created a TikTok video that had was viewed over 160,000 times that argued that the Gates Foundation had created the virus to promote its own pro-vaccine agenda, which is patently untrue. So I would characterize that as disinformation because it's kind of trying to destabilize evidence-based health sciences, um, which argues for vaccines. It yeah. strikes me that one of the biggest challenges we have at the moment is that news publications are under incredible threat as a result of the economic fallout, right? Yeah. So you have yeah. a number of publications closing their doors, other reputable publications losing huge amounts of ad revenue. So the longer this drags on, the more difficult it is. And, and reporters can't go out and do their jobs. So the longer it drags on, more, the more difficult it is to get the right information out into the public sphere at such an urgent time. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, that's where the social media companies can help because I don't believe they're hurting at this time for money. And I think they're doing this on a kind of pro bono basis. Um, not only are they promoting positive messaging from the World Health Organization, or I should say evidence-backed uh, messaging from the World Health Organization, they're also suppressing um, bad information when um, they're kind of their checkers find it. And so I was thinking of this phrase um, in one of the articles I read, um, there's a Cornell professor of government named Sarah Kreps, and she has a phrase called algorithmic capitalism. And I was thinking that kind of what's happening now between the WHO and these social media companies, we might call algorithmic public health because they are trying to create a, a kind of steady stream of messaging that will change people's behaviors in response to what the social media companies know about their um, behaviors and, and kind of browsing habits. Yeah, that's really interesting. One thing that I've noticed yeah. is I'll see messages, like there was one going around our kind of like local next door group where the it, it's misinformation or maybe even disinformation, but it's prefaced by, oh, this is information from a Stanford doctor, or this is information from, and mm -hmm. it's like trying to make these nods mm -hmm. towards like an authority figure, but it doesn't link to them. It doesn't call them by name. So it's like kind of interesting to see how the the misinformation and the disinformation is sort of borrowing these kind of academic research moves that we expect our students to do, but not using them in kind of an authentic or, or kind of actual evidence-backed way. No, I think that's right. I think that the, the kind of the moves of credibility can easily be appropriated, kind of convey like a veneer of authority. And that's why, uh, like another way we can think about this um, in terms of medicine and public health inter kind of interventions is that people really need treatment literacy. Like it's, it's knowledge that needs to be developed over time about what it means to treat this disease and prevent this disease. And it, it doesn't take just, you know, one cute ad about garlic, you know, on Facebook to do this. It's really um, a kind of sustained effort that I think we have to have across time um, and, and perhaps as part of our schooling too. Yeah, for sure. Well, and also, 
even for journalism, kind of to get back to Hayden's point as well, that was um, Mm. the article that I had found that I thought was really interesting. It's kind of an opinion, an op-ed in Scientific American by these two epidemiologists at Harvard. Mm. And they they were sort of putting forth some principles that they felt needed to be followed for kind of responsible reporting on the the COVID-19 epidemic or pandemic. And they really thought that journalists and I guess other people who are talking about this need to distinguish between the information that we know is true from information that we think might be true based on kind of inference from, from other studies or extrapolation from other diseases, and then things that are just pure opinion and speculation. And so they really felt like this wasn't happening and I think this kind of ties back into to that idea of kind of having a more like more literacy around public health in the general population, because I've definitely noticed and I've even done this, like, you know, as someone who has a background in biology, it was really easy for me at the beginning of the of the epidemic when people were starting to kind of hear reports out of China and to hear, you know, starting to get worried. It was really easy for me to say, oh, you know. SARS, like we know all about SARS and it wasn't that bad and it was only spread in hospitals. And like, it was easy for me to sort of make these comparisons to things that I knew about, but that wasn't necessarily true for this particular virus and this particular disease. And so thinking about like being careful about how we present information and seeing kind of the impact that can have, like I might just say something off the cuff to someone, but then you never quite know where that's going to go after the fact. Yeah, and we would we would take what you say as very authoritative because you are a biologist, Jenny. <laughs> you know, I would I would I would definitely defer to you. That's what terrifies me. If you said something off yeah. the cuff. Um, yeah. But it's important to think yeah. about, right? That like I'm not a virologist, I'm a plant biologist. Mm-hmm. And um right. so like my expertise right. does not really spread this far. But I think it's really interesting. And it gets back to this idea of kind of like co-opting these sort of moves of credibility a place that we're seeing a lot of information right now is in what's called archive or bio archive, which are these preprint servers where scientists and doctors can like put up a journal article that they've written, Mm, but that hasn't gone through the whole peer review process yet. And so it's interesting to see how those papers are being picked up by journalists and by other people kind of in the media or in social media and being kind of stated as fact, like, Oh, scientists found it was snakes. That's where this coronavirus came from. But that's not true. And that study wasn't a very good study. And it might have been out there. It might have seemed to have this kind of veneer of credibility, but it hadn't gone through the whole process. But because this is such a rapidly changing situation and we're so kind of thirsty for more information, we're willing to kind of jump on things that seem like they might be credible, even if they turn out to not be. Yeah, one of the stories that I found really persuasive, and I had no way of verifying it, but it it was circulating on social media. And supposedly it was you know, a first-hand account of a doctor in Italy, you know, having to make these really terrible, you know, first of all, just recording kind of the the breadth and the depth of the devastation of that the disease was wrecking there. And then kind of the hard decisions that she was having, having to make as she meted out care. And, you know, I, I read it kind of hungrily to try to get kind of an understanding of what this pandemic could mean, but I have no idea if that was actually real, but it had kind of all the hallmarks of a first person, you know, witnessing of, you know, someone managing a lot of patients in a hospital. um, And supposedly it was from a doctor, you know, and so you, I don't know, I'm not sure how you verify that, except I think what we do is we 
teach our students to to be mm-hmm. skeptical, yeah. right? Uh, it strikes me that one of the things about this novel coronavirus is just how many other things are novel as a result of it. Oh, our ways right. of consuming media, our ways yes. of relating to each other. I mean, the entire world now, we're seeing it anew. It's all novel. And the type of knowledge that we need to produce about viruses, I mean, we can be certain going forward that there'll be a lot more investment in in that as well. So we're just reckoning with so many new ways of speaking to each other and understanding the world as a result. Yeah, that's such a great po- uh, point, Hayden. My mom was saying to me the other day that she feels like she sees the adjective <laughs> unprecedented in like every fifth sentence of everything she reads. And so I think you're right, the world is being remade. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, this kind of categorization from the epidemiologists about what reporters should talk about, like they have the third category is opinion and speculation. And I think because this is such an unprecedented situation, we need those opinions, like we need those first person accounts, we need the doctor saying this is what I'm seeing Mm -hmm. in the trenches, um, to use a war metaphor, which is another thing we could talk about. I mean, this is certainly one of the moments where speed is of the essence, and you would want to read preprints, you would want to read things that hadn't been peer reviewed because they might spur innovation and, you know, treatments. But I think we also have to be careful because, you know, it's simple things like, oh, it's snakes or, oh, it's children can't be, can't, you know, children Mm -hmm. are immune or don't, you don't bother to wear masks. And we're finding out that so many of these things are now wrong. And Mm -hmm. what's the result of- of Yeah. Or at least like, if they're not completely wrong, then our understanding of them isn't as certain as we thought. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it just gets back to Sarah's point though, right? Of what we tell our students of just to be kind of skeptical of new information, right? That sort of Mm -hmm. take everything with a grain of salt, try to get outside verification, try to get confirmation from another source. You know, it's one thing to have one doctor in Italy kind of giving this first person account. But when you have 10 doctors that are all giving the same account, then that starts to lend more weight to that information. And I even think there's there's like for me is more credible at this point at this moment is a kind of humility about our knowledge because it is so new. And so I guess what I would have my students attend to is how uncertainty is expressed. You know, but that if there's too much uncertainty, then of course people aren't persuaded either. I mean, absolutely, we need to take the statistics about the number of people who have been hospitalized or tested with a grain of salt because you know we we just there's so much noise in that data right now. So that's right. It's, it's the, the challenge, as you said, of of reading in a credible way, knowing that there is a, a a virulent pathogen out there, but at the same time, also being a little bit discerning, I think, has has sort of maxed us both personally and socially about what we can really manage in terms of consuming information. Yeah, for sure. It's really complex, right? And I think this is like a perennial problem. It's not like it's just this particular coronavirus, this particular pandemic. I mean, this is something that we all struggle to kind of help our students understand and to help others understand. But it is a really good case study of of perhaps things we could be doing differently and things we could be doing better. But it's just tough because people are worried, right? And so it's it's seem it's easy to understand why people want to jump onto something that seems like it is a good idea because they don't have any other options right now. And that is kind of terrifying. Well, on that lovely note, Sarah, do you want to talk a little bit about sort of the way people are reacting and, and the kind of how information might be bringing different groups together? 
Yeah, so I, I mean, for me, a connection that I see is that one way that we know rhetoric is effective is that it changes behaviors, right? So one way to think about the rhetoric of COVID-19 is to think about we are responding kind of not only verbally, but also in, in terms of our actions. And this idea was picked up by David Brooks in early March, who is a New York Times columnist, if you don't know him. And he had an opinion piece titled Pandemics Kill Compassion Too. And his premise was that pandemics drive people apart because he observed rightly that social distancing is a virtue in a pandemic. But the downside of that is that it tends um, to make us withhold care from some. Um, and uh, as we've talked about that, we know that, that that's happened in Italy and has probably happened in other places and, and could be happening here in, in the States as well. Um, and it's something that's historically has been observed. So in the 14th century, Boccaccio observed in Northern Italy, as it happens about the plague, that parents were actually abandoning their children. And Brooks asks why, you know, and he says, well, plagues bring a strong sense of fatalism that, that people just feel like they have a little control over their lives. And then he also observes that they often don't want to talk a lot about the plague and that that was particularly noticeable in the case of the 1918 flu, which which was attributed to wrongly to a, a place, um, to Spain, the Spanish flu, so-called Spanish flu. He says that very few books or plays were written about it, which I thought was really interesting if it's in fact true. And he argues that there were people had a kind of sense of shame for their own lack of compassion. And always the exception, he says, are the healthcare workers. But basically, the, the point of his piece is that we have to attend to the moral disease as much as we do to physical disease. And I think uh, it's something that we're seeing a little bit in, in the rhetoric of COVID-19. But I, I want to point to a lot of counter app examples. He's, he's a conservative and he can be a little bit pessimistic. So when he says pandemics kill compassion, like I, I've observed also a lot of solidarity between people um, even beyond like the heroics of our of our healthcare workforce, um, and just some examples I've noticed, um, there have been you know a lot of GoFundMe circulating for people who've lost their jobs. There have been very um, successful drives for PPE for healthcare workers, and I guess I also want to raise the possibility that the silence or the absence isn't necessarily about shame; that it might be saying more than that. Um, and this came to mind because there's again this kind of viral post um, on social media that came around from actually one of our colleagues in power. I won't read the whole thing, but this might sound familiar to you guys. So this, this post said, when you go out and see the empty streets, the empty stadiums, the empty train platforms, don't say to yourself, it looks like the end of the world. What you're seeing is love and action. What you're seeing in that negative space is how much we do care for each other, for our grandparents, for our, in, our immunocompromised brothers and sisters, for people we will never meet. People will lose their jobs over this. Some will lose their businesses and some will lose their lives all the more reason to take a moment when you're out on your walk or on your way to the store, just watching the news to look into the emptiness and marvel at all of that love. And so it made me wonder if the rhetoric of compassion in the case of a pandemic is often a negative space. And I say that because I think um, we feel a collective loss and there may be silence just because it's hard to find the words to describe it. So that would be my response to Brooks. But I wonder what he would say today 
with the, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans who are sheltering in place. So like you, Sarah, I'm really compelled um, by the new and emergent social practices that have Mm -hmm. emerged in response to the pandemic. And one of them that has really caught my attention has been this rhetoric of social distancing. So Mm -hmm. what words do we use to understand the new formations that regulate our lives? Of course, people have been moving away from pandemic throughout history, even before they understood the actual biology of it. But it strikes me that this idea of social distancing is a new type of terminology that is suddenly very ever-present for us and is the primary discourse that is shaping social life today. And there's lots of other words that people use as well. They talk about stay at home, shelter in place, quarantine, lockdown. But there's something about social distancing that really brings up a lot of the issues you mentioned, which is how do we live together apart, right? And social distancing is an oxymoron. It's a paradox. To be social means to be together with other people. And people are really struggling, I think, to adapt. And the entire world that we've constructed for ourselves, the way that we work, the way that we teach, the way that we have organized public space is really ill-equipped for this new reality where we have to be so careful about our bodies and the arrangement of our bodies in in space. And of course, not all people can be socially distant Mm -hmm. at all. We have our frontline workers, the doctors, the nurses, the grocery store workers, the delivery drivers, and so many others who don't have that luxury of of always socially distancing. And so you see a lot of this rhetoric, oh, we're doing this for them. We're staying home so they can go and work on our behalf. And I agree with you that there is a lot of solidarity, a lot of compassion, even patriotism, civic duty is all expressed both in the rhetoric and in the action. Right. So it strikes me that this concept of social distancing is almost like the premise to a horror film. If you were to tell us <laughs> six months ago that people can't go near each other lest they die or accidentally kill their loved ones, like that would seem so absurd and so ridiculously cruel. But that's exactly what we're facing today. Sandro Galia from Boston University has talked about physical distancing and social connection. So the question is, how do we keep up a sense of community because we're social animals? Uh, certainly many people's uh, communities have been really permanently disrupted by this. And at its worst, we see new suspicion of neighbors and strangers, suspicions of the others. But there's also been, like you say, Sarah, so much hope in the ways that people have reorganized life so quickly in order to find these connections. So you can log on online and find social distancing festivals, dance parties. Those moments are so hopeful. And, you know, mm-hmm. we see it with the videos mm-hmm. of the Italians singing together on their balconies each, mm-hmm. uh, each night. People are finding a way to be together while they are apart. We are looking for these moments of connection, a renewal of the social spirit at a time when the social itself as an entity has been really taxed. So it strikes me that, you know, this social distancing, it affects, and the virus itself, it affects everyone, but doesn't affect everyone equally, right? So there mm-hmm. are existing social inequalities that are sort of coming to the surface here. Everyone is at risk, but not equally. So um, in the New York Times, Noam Schreiber, Nelson Schwartz, and Tiffany Hu wrote a beautiful piece about an emergent caste system in the U.S. where the rich go to their vacation homes, the middle class are stuck at home with their children, and working class people have to go out and risk their lives in order to earn a living. 
this divide is yeah. really becoming reified at this moment. And there are other divides as well, whether it's the generational divide, the immunocompromise, the people who can't leave their house for fear of, of not being able to recover from this. And of course, the red-blue divide, the people who don't believe yet that this is a problem. While we were social distancing at the beginning of March, we saw these images of the spring breakers in Florida having a great time and putting themselves and all of yeah. us at risk. No, it's tough. And there's also, and this is already starting to happen a bit in China, but it's going to start happening here as well. There's going to be like a, like an immune divide, basically, right? So people who have been sick and recovered, mm-hmm. who now most likely, I, I don't want to say anything for certain, but it seems like it will give like at least a short-term immunity, who will be able to, you know, they'll have like a superpower, basically. They can't get sick again. And so thinking about what that might mean if if they're yeah. like maybe they get paid extra to do deliveries so or something. Actually, so that's actually yeah. happened before in history. And our colleague, our Stanford historian colleague, Catherine Olivarius, has done research on New Orleans where people would uh, regularly, uh, 19th century New Orleans, where people would regularly com- succumb to... Um, Yellow fever. What was it? Yellow, Yellow fever. fever. Yeah. And those who... Uh, survived it, were worthy of getting loans, were worthy of standing for office. They had a mm-hmm. sense of immunocapital. And just today, Germany announced that they're now going to test for antibodies and the people that uh, have them will get a certificate wow. of immunity, right? Yeah, so wow. we're dividing society yet again. And of course, we want immunity. We want these tests, but we also need to be mindful of the yeah. stigma that might attach. Yeah, right. And I mean, and this does kind of feed into Brooks's point, right? That pandemics can drive people further apart. And that it takes, I think, a lot of very artful rhetoric, right? And a lot of uh, strong intentionality to yeah, make sure that doesn't But to bring it happen. back to the idea of compassion, though, yeah. someone who has recovered from, from a coronavirus infection, like, and they're starting to, to do this, I think, in some places, or at least they're approving it if people want to try, but you can use their blood plasma as a treatment for people who are still sick because the antibodies that they're mm. producing can then be given to mm. someone else. And that's not without risk. Um, you could transfer some other type of infection along with those um, antibodies, but it is interesting to think about. And it was used for Ebola. So this was a treatment that was used for, um, for especially some of the healthcare workers who came back to the U.S. who were infected with Ebola. And I think that kind of gives me that little bit more hope for kind of compassion and people helping each other as opposed to sort of having the segregated society of like who has immunocapital and who doesn't, but that we can actually use that to help treat and um, get other people healthy. I mean, it sort of reframes the idea of the gift, the gift that you could give someone, the gift of life is now a biological gift as well. You know, giving blood is so much more than just the blood itself. It's actually the antibodies within it. Yeah. Mm So the last thing that I've been thinking about is just the way that coronavirus, COVID-19, has reconfigured our fundamental perception of time and space, the very coordinates of the world we live in. So now cities have been turned into ghost towns, public parks and stadiums that once were the site of congregation are now the site of contagion and are to be avoided. You know, we're all struggling to remember Mm -hmm. what day it is. People are joking about the endless weekend. And even when you see a friend, you have to sort of stop yourself from going close to them, right? So we're living in this new and uncharted world. It's a novel. We've produced something new as well. And we will be forever changed, I think, by the way that this virus is is shaping how we live and act towards one another. And I think that we have to find these moments of resilience, of hope, of generosity, because it's so easy to be uh, overcome by the suspicion. So 
what you're talking about, Sarah, it really resonates with me in terms of it, it really de- depends on how we want to read it. I think one of the things that's, that's toughest for me is to think that someday somebody's going to look back at this time and they're going to say, wow, 100,000 people died, 200,000 people died. That, that sounds bad. Or, oh, it's not that bad. But it is really terrifying to live through. And that sense of destabilizing, dislocation, losing one's orientation in space and time, social space and social time as well, I think is, is the thing that's hardest to capture. And so we look back at these past epidemics and we say, oh, what a shame. But here we are experiencing it and it and it seems like just unreal to go through. Yeah, I was I was thinking as you were talking Hayden that a lot has changed and time and space has been dislocated in some uh strong ways, but there are also ways that we you know keep some pretty strong touchstones I guess the rituals that keep us tethered in time and space in kind of our, the traditional organization of time and space. So what I'm thinking about is, you know, next week we start teaching again and that will start to, you know, create Mm -hmm. the framework for a week. Right. (laughs) And we'll know that these are the days we have classes. These are the days we tutor. I'm thinking about how, you know, for my kids, you know, the school year will come to an end and then summer will begin. So I think for, in terms of time, you know, we have, there are, as I said, these rituals that kind of help us demarcate it a little bit more. It, for me though, it is the, the space piece that has changed because of this very technology that we're talking over, you know, you are my colleagues who I usually see in the hallway. Um, and I don't even actually know where you are right now. <laughs> I mean, Jenny, I think <laughs> you're closer to Cupertino, you know, and I'm farther in the South Bay, but it doesn't really matter because your, your voices, you know, that are, that are coming across the phone lines and, and we're going to put this, this conversation together. So, for me, time hasn't changed as much as space has. So I, I just wanted to add that. Well, it, it's not just that, you know, we want these rituals that can somehow make life go back to normal. It's that we actually need the routines to be healthy people. You know, yeah, it doesn't right. do us any good to sit in front of the phone all day. And I think when things do go back to normal, the most important thing is to remember, you know, the the social inequalities, the differences. And, and try to, to work to better that, not to just put the system back and not think about, you know, the shortages of PPEs or the lack of healthcare that people have, but to actually continue to work so that the next time we have a pandemic, and I think we will have another one, you know, if our food system continues to be configured the way it is, then we're going to be yeah, a little definitely. bit better. To and I mean, one other kind of, yeah, one other place where this is impacting people in an unequal way deals with the aspect of gender. And this is an interesting one in terms of pandemics, but it ties into this idea of like setting up normal routines. So I have two little kids, one's in preschool, one's in elementary school, and it's so tough for them to be out of their normal routine. And there's just nothing I can do to like replicate a first grade classroom in my house. Like it's just not possible. And just the lack of kind of classmates and just the expert training that elementary school teachers have to be able to kind of really encourage those students to learn. And it's been really tough for my kiddos to adapt to this new space and the lack of kind of the things that they were used to doing and the people they were normally interacting with. 
And it's been really interesting to see how those impacts can affect women more than men because women are often the default carers in their family. And so, and they're often the ones who are taking up the brunt of this homeschooling. It's interesting to see how, you know, we're thinking a lot about the, for good reasons, the, you know, healthcare workers, the grocery workers, the people who are on the front lines who have to go out into the world. Um, But for those of us stuck at home, there's also inequalities that we're seeing within our households about, you know, even if my husband is picking up extra, you know, he's taking care of the kids, he has them right now, they're out on a bike ride, but I'm the default one that they go to if we're both working. And so it's also going to be really interesting to see, you know, what happens, like are some, are some families not going to recover from that? Is there going to be a parent that basically reverts back to staying home all the time? If these school closures continue into the fall, is that going to kind of continue to reinforce these patterns? It's going to be really interesting to see basically this dichotomy between sort of the unpaid work that a lot of us do and then the paid work that we do outside of the house or over Zoom in this case. Absolutely. And especially with the, with the economic mm-hmm. fallout still to come, we'll, we'll see industries impacted in different ways. And what it yeah. really does is make visible all that labor. And it begs mm-hmm. the question of, of who's doing it. And it's, you know, not that anybody could really doubt the brilliance of a, a preschool teacher or elementary school teacher, but I think a lot of people learned, you know, in the past month, <laughs> wow, this, this is basically yeah. impossible. How do you manage? Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> the question will be, now that the, the, the pandemic mm-hmm. has made all this visible, what do we do next? I mean, it certainly has been incredibly unbalanced for women. Domestic violence are up as well. There's lots to be concerned about. So, you know, it's too early to even talk about recovery at this point. But if we look ahead to that, how do we reconfigure a more equitable world? Social structures, family structures, I think, is the big question here. We can't just mm-hmm. be happy to go back to normal. No. Yeah. The thing that I, um, if we're, since we're looking to the future and inequities, I mean, my hope is, is this shows a couple of things, you know, I think you guys have probably seen those visuals of um, how pollution has gone down dramatically over the kind of some of the major cities in China and over the major cities over Northern Italy and also over the Bay area and, and New York. Um, and so my hope is, is that part of this, you know, solidarity that we're seeing that people can realize that collectively we can take action in the, in the face of climate change and that it can make a difference. And hopefully without, you know, the kind of damaging economic fallouts we might be seeing with this, maybe that can be mitigated in some way. But that's, that's something that, you know, because, you know, the climate change affects people mm-hmm. so unequally too, just as the pandemic does. And it just shows how it's all connected, right? I mean, this ties back to sort of the food systems that Hayden was talking Mm -hmm. about at the very beginning, right? That, you know, the climate change and the food systems are all tied together. And then we get these emergent infections because of the way we're exploiting our natural systems. And, and it just shows the complexity as well. And I think it can be hard for people to, I mean, we were talking about how hard it is just to kind of deal with the onslaught of information, but just also grappling with the complexity of our world and how so many things are interconnected. Um, mm-hmm. I think you're right that this really lays that mm-hmm. bare and it will be interesting to see what we do with it once it's, once it's hopefully all over. Yeah. I mean, it definitely shows the pandemic, climate change, our food systems, these are social problems and they require 
social solutions. So it would be wonderful mm-hmm. if we come up with a biological or a technological solution to the pandemic, but there will be other pandemics, there will be other novel viruses. And we need to come up with systems that ensure the well-being of all. I think that's the real thing that we're learning here. It doesn't matter how rich you are, how wealthy mm-hmm. you are, everybody is at risk and we yeah. need to act accordingly. I, I think it's really I think it's really interesting that our conversation has turned to the future and we've, you know, we've been cautious about it, that it's kind of too early to say what will happen. Because one of the things that I've noticed in terms of the rhetoric of this virus and this disease, this pandemic, is that it's it's not very future oriented. It's very much about can we just document it, what happened yesterday or what happened today? And it hasn't even really gone into the kind of like causal analysis, at least the, that I've been seeing in the mainstream ma- media. It hasn't looked back as as kind of deliberately as I would have expected. And I think in part, it's just because it is so unprecedented and just trying to describe what's happening today is hard work and confusing and, you know, finding the words and that will make sense of the data has has been a challenge and, and that things are changing so fast, right? So how do you keep, how does your language account for the speed of that change? Um, I don't know. So that's I just, think that's, that's, do you, have you guys had that experience too, as you read about it? I think that's really true, Sarah, yeah. is that, you know, where, where it came from sometimes feels like a bit of a curiosity and nobody yeah. is really talking seriously about what we no. need to do. We're all inhabiting this big, yeah. long present together. And it's just going to yes. stretch out and, and get more grim and then hopefully less grim. But yeah, I mean, we're just all in the moment of this and it feels overwhelming and, and almost sublime to, to really inhabit. Yeah. To the extent that we are talking about the future, it feels like a, a kind of clear goal is flattening the curve. You know, if there's kind of like one metaphor or one like kind of piece of visual rhetoric that for me has has really come to kind of represent this moment. It's that that's our collective goal is to flatten the curve. And so what the future looks like is a flatter curve and then a decline. And for for the moment, that's kind of all that we can imagine. And I, and I wonder if it wouldn't be kind of salutary to, you know, to do, to prompt kind of more of this future thinking that we've had just kind of in the last five minutes together, thinking about, you know, what, what can this present moment teach us about what we want for our future? You know, and, and, and I think especially what I was trying to say, but maybe not very elegantly just a moment ago is kind of what can this present moment and how we've all changed, you know, teach us about what we're capable of, because I don't know that that was apparent to as wide a swath of Americans as you'd think. Yeah. I think Mm -hmm. it's, you know, trying not to be overwhelmed in the moment so that we really can be clear headed about the future is going to be important to think about. And I think you're right that people aren't really talking about that yet. I don't know if we've gotten to that space. It's kind of a culture right now. But I, I think there's a yeah. lack of certainty as well, right? Like we just don't know what's going to happen. And so it's hard to think about the future. Well, it just shows that we depend on each other. You know, it will make a difference if everybody shelters in place, if everybody uh, washes their hands, then this will be over sooner. So we're really living a collective yeah. moment. It's like we're all doing something to, for the betterment of our society and for the betterment of kind of the health of the human population. And that is something to be excited about. And so thinking about how we frame the way we talk about the situation is really important because it can promote that more positive message.
Absolutely. These framings are everything. If we're going to have any type of you know, social action or collective coordination, we need to frame this in the right way. Excellent. All right. Well, I'm going to go allow my screaming children back at the house. Thank you, Jenny, <laughs> for having us. Um, thank you both so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Um, so again, this is Jenny Stoniker. I've been joined by Sarah Pittick and Hayden Cantor from the Program in Writing and Rhetoric at Stanford University um, to talk about rhetoric of COVID-19.